Hello, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rufert. My name is Steve McDonough. But I Digest is a semi-regular podcast that celebrates the food in our lives, its history, its heroes, and all of its glorious hoopla. On each episode, we feature a specific food or drink or ingredient, collecting the fragrant seeds of its history, extracting the essential oils from its facts, and then enjoying a healthy shot of its aromatic liqueur as we digest the whole thing. And today's topic is fennel. So are you, uh, what are you, are you a fennel fan? Are you on board, Team Fennel? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I generally, fennel tastes of licorice, yes. All it does? All those anise flavors. I don't like licorice specifically. I don't like black licorice. So there are times when Dan makes a lovely salad of fresh fennel bulb with orange segments, the Supremes, mm. um, which is terrific. But um, I'm not a huge fennel guy. I'm not a licorice guy. Well, we're going to get into that because they are two very se separate things that have a little bit of overlap. So we'll get into why it is you might like one but not the other because it does sometimes, because of its cousin, the black licorice, uh, it gets a bit of a, uh, of a bad reputation. I, on the other hand, could eat black licorice all day long. In fact, on my recent trip to Germany, I brought back, we had a stopover in Amsterdam, the salty black licorice, which is, you know, it's crazy salty. It is almost like getting kicked in the head with black licorice. And I could not get enough. I love it. I wish I'd brought more home. That so. really, that really sounds gross. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'd care for that. Uh, and it was in the shape of either herring. So they're called salty black licorice herrings. Or uh -huh. in Germany, they are in the shape of cat, uh, cat's tongues. They're called katzetunge. Uh, and who had the idea that let's make a food that looks like a severed tongue from a cat? Kids will love that. This German well, marketing. Yeah, well, isn't it odd that like Swedish fish and those, I mean, why why should they be shaped like fish? That, that doesn't is true. sound like a delicious candy either. That is um, true. And that black licorice sounds like the the meanest of the Swedish fish. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, it's the bad guy. It's the evil uh, villain in the uh, in the story of the Swedish fish. So as usual, you know, I'm a plant guy. I love it. In fact, not that you can see it, uh, you listeners, but I am holding up uh, fennel that I just picked from my garden. I have the uh, little seed pods. I have the little ferny fronds. Uh, I use it all the time. And as a as a kind of a foodie gardener, I always have something edible in the garden pretty much year round. Um, but fennel is one of those things that that once you have it, you always have it because it reseeds and, and it, uh, it's one of those things. It's almost like a commitment. Once you have fennel, you might as well know it's a lifelong relationship because you will always have fennel. And the plant itself is in this larger family. It's called Apiaceae. And the Apiaceae family sometimes are called are as umbrella plants. In fact, there's another Latin uh, umbellifers. In fact, the word for umbrella comes from the shape of these, uh, these plant seeds. Uh, so things like uh, angelica, caraway, carrots, celery, uh, chervil, coriander, cumin, dill, lovage, parsley, parsnip, and sea holly. All of them have these little umbrella shaped, and I'll have to put a picture on the website, but they really do look like tiny little umbrellas uh, when they have the, the seed pods. Did you uh, get that list off of like Wikipedia? It is suspiciously uh, alphabetical. Well, I uh, my brain thinks that way, but actually it's off of a gardening website because it's such a big family. Now, this is actually my edited down version because the list was much, much longer. So it is alphabetical, but I removed some sort of randomly yeah, in there. Got rid of the, got rid of the J's. Well, no, there's an Indian no spice that. that I never know how to pronounce. It's asiafetida. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's also in there. So to save myself some embarrassment, which I wish just dip myself back into. Uh, but anyway, 
So all of these uh, very cleverly alphabetically organized plants have these tiny little umbrellas for um, for their seed pods, which do you absolutely no good, no good if it's raining outside, uh, but at least it helps you identify them. And the seeds are multiple, so they they fall all over the garden. So it's ideal to collect them and eat them, but you're going to have them growing where you least expect them. And that's an okay thing. Now, the terms fennel and anise get used kind of interchangeably. So I just want to take a second from a from a botanical sense and talk about the difference. Now, uh, you being British, I think the British say anise um, sometimes, or at least uh, I know I've heard British people say anise, uh, but it's in the States here, we call it anise. And they really are in the same family. And I have to mention, I love the Latin name. So fennel is funiculum vulgare. So the word vulgar is in there. Yeah, yeah, and then, like yeah, and anise is pimpanella, which uh, Pimpinella, I, I think, is going to be my new stage oh, name. Uh, no, uh, Anis Pimpinella. Anis Pimpinella. Yeah, that's I a love great it. drag name. Well, I just Anis Pimpinella. If we could combine the two and have Pimpinella Vulgare, that would even be better. <gasps> like Pimpinella Vulgar. Oh, we're anyway. on a drag roll. Okay. I love it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I just had to mention that because they're great uh, Latin names, uh, and usually they're a mouthful. So. Uh, but both of these plants are native to the Mediterranean, and they both have that sort of licorice flavor profile, which tarragon is another herb that has that kind of similar. I also dislike tarragon. Really? God, I could eat mm -hmm. it all day long. So both plants, fennel and anise, are known for that licorice flavor, and that flavor comes from an essential oil called anethole. And anethole is really mostly concentrated in the seeds, but you will find slight percentage or, or a little bit in the bulb or the stems. Uh, so you'll have notes of that throughout the plant, but really in the seed is where it's uh, most potent. So really the difference is one of them is a perennial, one of them is an annual. So one of them comes back every year, the other one only lives one year and then reseeds itself. Uh, and anise is a little bit stronger. So if you have anise and the recipe calls for fennel seed, you would use a little less of it. Or if you have fennel and it calls for anise, you'd use a little more fennels. But honestly, they're pretty much interchangeable when it comes on the on the culinary side. Now, fennel in California has become a bit of an invasive species. So it's not native to California, but if you go to the Bay Area, wild fennel is growing pretty much everywhere out there. And it's really? super, yeah, it's super tall and um you know, in the 90s, there kind of was a trend towards wild fennel pollen was on every fancy menu. Yeah. And it was either used as a garnish or it was used as kind of a last minute, you know, addition to something. And really, the reason was because it was everywhere. It really was like a kudzu is here in the south. Wild fennel grows everywhere in uh, that kind of north central California uh, on the coast. And the pollen itself is bright yellow. It's beautiful. It's super fragrant. Yeah. Uh, and it's absolutely free. So when life hands you lemons, uh, if you've got them growing around, you might as well use them. So I have to mention the word licorice as a plant also because licorice is going to come up a lot. Now, true licorice comes from the root of a plant called uh, glyceriza. Glyceriza glabra was my other stage name. And so glyceriza, and uh, there's a, a chemical component in there called glycerizin. Now, glycerizin is a nat uh, natural sweetener that's in the licorice root, but it tastes a lot like saccharin. So if you ever had uh, sweet and low, you know, those yellow packets yeah, that old people still ask for when they, when they get coffee, can we get the pink sweetener? I've never liked it because it has that weird kind of a bitter, you know, back end of that. And so that is naturally occurring in the licorice root. So the thing that we talked about earlier in the black jelly beans, which is 
made from oftentimes a true licorice root, it has that saccharin-like quality in there. So even though that plant also has those anethols in there, the same sort of chemical compound that gives you that flavor, it's the addition of that uh, glycerizin that makes it kind of that weird oddness. And so I think that's where the people that are not on team black licorice are super sensitive to that. And I guarantee you, most of the people that say they don't like black licorice also don't like the pink sweetener. Does that make sense? Yeah. Same. Yeah. yeah, Naturally occurring kind of an overlap there. So, but in the, in the purpose of our context, we are talking mainly about fennel and anise can be used interchangeably. So uh, I love when foods like this go back to, you know, pre-recorded history and when there's actually mythology about a plant or specifically a food plant. So fennel is one of those, since it pops up in multiple cultures and multiple times going back thousands of years, we find it here and there, but nowhere as, uh, you know, kind of front and center as in Greek mythology, because growing in the Mediterranean region, of course, the Greeks are going to have it all around there as well. So this gets us to Prometheus. Now, Prometheus, who was the brother of Atlas, who was famous for making maps. Not really. <laughs> That's how I know Atlas. But um, so Prometheus decided to play a trick against Zeus. And I want to know, like, what kind of a day he was having where he thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a trick against the god. Um, but what he did was he placed two sacrificial offerings uh, before Zeus, who was, you know, the head of Mount Olympus. And on one offering was a selection of cuts of beef that were hidden inside of an ox stomach. And on the other hand, behind door number two, uh, was bull's bones that were wrapped completely in glistening fat. And the term glistening fat apparently is a direct translation because glistening fat, uh, which is in the name of my next album, uh, is, uh, is used often in this particular tale. So Zeus um, chose what was behind door number two and basically then Prometheus said, oh, the gods must like bones wrapped in fat. And so the humans then started uh, keeping all of the good choice cuts of meat for themselves. And then at their at their sacrifices, they were leaving a bunch of fatty bones for the gods on the assumption that that's what they like, because that's what Zeus had chosen. Well, Zeus uh, did not like this practical joke. And so he decided to take fire away from the humans. Now, humans were already using fire. It was already a part of their culture. So this wasn't like they were withholding fire at the beginning. This is taking away something that you're already used to. It'd be like taking oh, your- Oh, hell yeah. No, I mean, if they're yeah. taking away glistening fat and fire, <laughs> there goes the bacon. Uh, well, there you there go. goes the bacon. I will, Zeus is like, screw you, no bacon. Yeah. It would be like if I didn't know the iPhone existed and uh, I didn't have one, no big deal. But if I'm using it every day and then you take it away, eh, it's a big deal. Yeah. So, uh, and, but the, your bacon analogy is actually a little more on point. Uh, so Zeus being the angry guy that he is, he took away uh, fire from humans. So Prometheus, never one to be outdone, uh, went back and stole the fire from Zeus. And he did so in the hollow stalk of a fennel frond. So if you cut some fennel, like the longer, taller parts of them, yeah. it is a, a lot like celery. It has these sort of hollow tubes on the inside. Mm -hmm. So he cleverly um, stole fire back from the gods. And of course, as you might imagine, that pissed Zeus off even more than the fatty bones practical joke from earlier. Um, and so for his crimes, Prometheus was punished, who bound him with change and then sent an eagle to eat Prometheus's liver every day, as one does, uh, which grew back every night. So that is a very specific punishment. Yes, so, it is. Yeah. Uh, which I'm, a liver is fatty, too. It's yeah, yeah, a fatty liver. I imagine fennel would go really nice with a nice crispy piece of a sausage. Nice, 
Chianti with your liver. <laughs> Which will then grow back Other tomorrow. Beans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, essentially his liver then would grow back every night and then the eagle would come back and then eat his liver again. So um, now that whole thing, who, who writes these things? I don't know. Uh, but then I thought it was later, a true story. Oh, it is a true story. We have the videos on YouTube. Uh, it's on TikTok, actually. Um, so the Greek hero Heracles, with Zeus's permission, I love the fact that Heracles went to Zeus and said, hey, can I go ahead and kill that eagle? So eventually, um, Prometheus was freed from his chains, the eagle was killed, and his uh, eternal torment was ended. Um, but that's a that's a hell of a backstory for uh, for a plant in my garden. Um, so anyway, that's <laughs> uh, which, by the way, I am uh, last time you had a beer and I was very jealous did. when we did the German beer episode. I now have a glass of uh, fennel seeds from my garden, a little bit of honey and some hot water, and I'm drinking it through a, a yerba mate straw. So I have a nice little uh, hot fennel drink for our on point. And I thought I was going to kind of you know rub your nose in it, but you don't really like fennel. So, yeah. I don't. Yeah, dang it. Uh, so after this bout of having your liver being eaten again and again and again, I imagine he was probably not feeling like 100% himself. But lucky for Prometheus and all of us, um, fennel is one of those plants that has just this plethora of medicinal properties. And it's used all over the world for different. In fact, it's one of those plants that has so many reputed you know, list of benefits that you almost start to wonder, like, how many of these can be can be true? So one of them is it's supposed to help with flatulence. Uh, and I've been uh, drinking tea all day long, and so far it seems to be going pretty good with the, oh, in the flatulence department. Uh, it's supposed you're in that tiny little attic. Oh yeah, exactly. I'm my own worst enemy if that was uh, not the case. Um, it is supposed to be fantastic for lactation. I will say I've been drinking it since this morning. So far, no, no real effects. Not I, lactating. No, doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be dropping. So uh, I can't uh, can't really judge on that one. Um, it is supposed to be a general muscle relaxer, which uh, is oftentimes used for menstrual cramps. But in general, it's supposed to be one of those things you drink fennel tea. It's supposed to help if you have aching muscles. Uh, it is reputed to be um, a bit of a fertility enhancer. So if you're trying to make a bibis. Well, going back to what you were talking about, the Greeks, um, did you did you ever hear of a, a thyrsus? T-H-Y-R-S-U-S, thyrsus, thyrsus, I'm not sure how they pronounced it. Um, it was a like a very large fennel bulb and stock and a stalk, and it had a cone tip uh, that uh, like Dionysus was carrying one. And that was a fertility cult. They were like entwined with uh, ivy and vine shoots. Uh, they were used during dances. Do you know about that? I don't know that. You know, I have three kids and that's enough. So I pretty much stopped learning about fertility at the third child. I thought, you know, we're good. I got three. <laughs> So I don't need any more studies in fertility, but uh, but I definitely came across uh, fennel as being one of those. Uh, the, the word fecund, fecund sounds like a bad yeah. thing, but uh, yeah. it is really one of those fertile kind of assembles. Um, and in that same sort of vein, it is supposed to stir the blood, right? It's supposed to it be um, an invigorating blood tonic. It's supposed to kind of excite you, uh, fennel. So uh, a lot of a lot of uh, benefits here. Another one is uh, improving your eyesight, but you know, carrots are reputed to be the same thing, right? And they're in the same general uh, family. And um, Longfellow, and how did he get that nickname? Is that his actual name or is that, a, that his name at parties? I don't know. Henry I know. Wadsworth Longfellow. But you know, there's gotta be some jokes, even in his oh, time, see. don't you think? It took you a second. <laughs> um, but in 1842, he wrote a poem called The Goblet of Life, and it repeatedly refers to fennel. And it goes as such, 
Above the lower plants it towers, the fennel with its yellow flowers, and in an earlier age than ours was gifted with the wondrous powers, lost vision to restore. And it's a great poem until the end there. It just sort of fizzles. I don't know. And I'm, uh, <laughs> I, think, I feel like that last line was a bit of a placeholder. Um, and then sort of getting wrapping up on the medicinal properties, gripe water. Now, uh, I have three children, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, Heidi, the youngest, was a gripey. She was an angry baby and was, was crying all the time. And that's where we discovered gripe water, which essentially is just fennel water. And it is supposed to really help, especially colicky babies. It's supposed to help them relax. And uh, I, uh, being a fan of uh, fennel, I oftentimes turn to the adult version of gripe water, which would be things like Fernibranca or uh, Jägermeister or things like that. Right. Speaking of gripe water, I mean, we can talk about alcohol and we can talk about alcohol and fennel. We were, Dan and I were in uh, Tuscany. We were teaching a class in Tuscany. It was on this Contessa's property. It was really cool. And so, of course, you're, you're on this property and there's food growing everywhere, right? There's wild vegetables and there's herbs everywhere and there's fennel growing all over the place but it's the t uh, i think i think they call it the roman fennel where it's really more about the frond right and right the stalks and less about the bulb yeah that's what's in my garden is that they call it the herbaceous variety but you're right it's the roman variety and it's all about the stalks the, the fronds and the seeds Exactly. So Dan is looking at all of the vegetables and the herbs and trying to figure out what he could do with it. I looked at the fennel. I'm like, oh, I can make a cocktail with this. So I found this big, uh, it was a, a wine jug, a big round glass bulbous, uh, it was pretty large jug for wine. And I filled it with the wild fennel. And then I filled that with vodka and I closed it up and left it for the whole week that we were teaching class. And on the last night of class, we had this fennel-infused vodka that I made a cocktail with fresh blood oranges and topped it with club soda. And it was like Tuscany. It was, it was just perfection out there with, because those kind of anise flavors of fennel love orange. Those two flavors go so well together. It was wonderful. Um, but when I really think of a spirit that is already containing fennel, I think of absinthe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, what we did, uh, I think it was uh, one of our first ones, we were talking about the monkey gland. It was a cocktail that was using absinthe. And I said, I wanted to get back to absinthe. So this was my absinthe excuse, my unexcused absinthe. <laughs> <laughs> I love your unexcused absinthe. Oh, my God. So we, totally not planned. Okay. So as you know, absinthe was famous for being banned. It was banned beginning in around 1908, uh, lasted for over 100 years. Now, while absinthe was being prohibited, pastis was created. Have you ever had pastis? I have. I have. And, and I didn't realize there, were, there was a connection there. Yeah. Well, pastis is not unlike absinthe. Uh, absinthe their French pastis usually contains anise and fennel. It's just about the essential French aperitif. If you're sitting outside in a French cafe trying to teach yourself to smoke, <laughs> um, they'll serve you a beautiful ornate glass of the pastis along with a small cold jug of water and you mix them together and it turns cloudy, not unlike ouzo wood or yeah, maybe Zambuca. I had read about that. So there's something in the, the seed in that, um, that anethyl compound that gives it that smell. Apparently when it's an alcohol and when water hits it, it actually changes like chemically and it's a beautiful little reaction that happens there. Exactly. It's called a louche. Ooh, I didn't know that. It is. We'll get there. But so the two, uh, pastis and 
Absinthe are really quite different though. Absinthe is bitter. It's a dry spirit, meaning it doesn't have sugar. It's made from anise, wormwood, and fennel. Now, pastis can be bottled with sugar, so it's not dry, and it does not contain wormwood. Now, pastis is usually 80 or 90 proof. Absinthe were 100 to 150 proof. Wow. Very strong. Now, I would say absinthe is probably the most maligned and most mysterious of all the spirits, which is why when I started putting this together, I had literally 15 pages of <laughs> notes. And it's like, how do I get this down into 10 minutes? So you know it as La Fée Verte, the Green Fairy. Yes. Yes, indeed. I love the I love all the marketing around that too, the, the Green Fairy oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. All of those Beautiful. Yeah. Belle Epoque type of posters. Oh, so gorgeous. Um, it was also known for La Verte, which is, uh, you know, the green hour. That's when people would go in that early evening window of time, head the radical bohemians, head over to the cafe for their absence, which became our happy hour. Oh, okay. Now it's a, it's a neutral spirit distilled from grapes, but in the second maceration process, it's infused with the wormwood, the anise, and the fennel. So again, if you don't like black licorice, it's an acquired taste and it is really, really strong. Uh, I only use a, a, a very bit, maybe, you know, an eighth of an ounce, quarter ounce, or even just rinsing a glass with the anise, excuse me, with the absinthe. You don't use very much of it. it. It gives you a lot of flavor. Wormwood is that ingredient that gives it the botanical bitter, bitterness, been associated with gods and magic since the ancient times. And as you will learn, the wormwood is the villain in today's uh, and it's, story. I have to say wormwood does not sound delicious. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and it's a villain. It is ah, bitter. Good. So Talking of hoopla, absinthe has some hoopla, the absinthe fountain. Have you ever seen an absinthe fountain? Is it like one of those chocolate fountains, I have to imagine? No, 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 not like that at all, although that sounds wonderful. No, it's kind of a large glass urn that would sit on a bar with a couple of different little spigots out of it, and the spigots drip water. So you would put your absinthe into, again, these beautiful little absinthe glasses. And on that, you would place a decorative slotted spoon. They were very ornate, sterling silver, beautiful cut spoons, a lot of slots in it, right? On top of that, you would put a sugar cube. Now, as the water slowly drips onto the sugar cube, the sugar water is slowly dripping through the spoon into the absinthe and making it cloudy and creating what we call volouche. So it is... Um, the oils come out of suspension and they turn opaque. And that whole process is very kind of fetishized. So there's a whole ritual to drinking the absinthe. And if absinthe drinking is ritual, then the fountain is the altar. Oh, I love it. Right? And it's, uh, it's, I love the word louche. I thought that was an Olympic sport, um, but now I, I need to work. Somehow <laughs> no, some, I need to... Some, some drinking is an Olympic sport. I imagine. My Olympics. Uh, my goal I'm today, I'm going to use the word louche in a sentence because um, uh, I just need to. My, my dentures are louche. <laughs> there you go, exactly. It's elusive. So the glamour partly comes from all of the influencers who were enjoying absinthe, like Vincent van Gogh, who in a letter to his brother Theo had said, uh, the only thing to bring ease and distraction in my case and other people's too is to stun oneself with a lot of drinking or heavy smoking. So sad. Stun one now, so. We know there is a the story that he drank too much absinthe and that is why he cut off his ear. There's many, no one knows what his actual diagnoses were. He was obviously 
uh, plagued by mental illness. But either way, drinking absinthe to, uh, to excess certainly exacerbated the issues that he had. Ernest Hemingway was a big absinthe drinker. He reportedly created the cocktail Death in the Afternoon, which is one of his books, which is absinthe and champagne. Very pretty drink, by the way. Manet did a classic painting called The Absinthe Drinker. And there's many, um, many absinthe paintings, wonderful absinthe paintings from around that time. Um, the Belle Epoque, just beautiful work done then. Baudelaire was a big one. He wrote a poem called Get Drunk, which mentions absinthe. And Oscar Wilde, who famously said, now stick with this, listen, after the first glass of absinthe, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see them as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are, and that is the most horrible thing in the world. Oh, wow. Right? Ouch. Yeah. And Toulouse-Lautrec, who painted a portrait of Vincent van Gogh drinking absinthe, and he titled that portrait, Vincent van Gogh drinking absinthe. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, love it. And his name, Toulouse, uh, sounds like your dentures are Toulouse. He also did all that before he became the subject of this week's Natalie's oh, no. the Straight Guy. All right, now, Hans, I think you're going to get this one. I oh, think no. you're going to get this one. This new stage adaptation, Broadway adaptation of a movie musical was the big winner at the 2021 Tony Awards, taking home 10 prizes, including Best Musical. In it, Toulouse-Lautrec, Santiago and Christiane drink absinthe in excess and imagine the heroine as the green fairy. It was a movie musical made into a Broadway musical. Oh my God. I mean, so I'm, I'm my brain is just trying to, uh, to, to find well, my first thought. Know was, this. I it should. comes back to someone that we spoke about earlier it, it, today. In this no, episode? Okay. In, an, in an elephant, in an elephant episode. Oh my God! Doot, 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 doot. That was such a big hint. An elephant. And, um, oh, oh uh, no, no, hang on. Uh, I was thinking elephant, Nicole Kidman. Elephant. Yes, uh, again. yes, so, yes, um, yes. Uh, um, I did the place Five, where they dance in four, France. It is three, uh, two. Moulin Rouge. Moulin oh, Rouge? beautiful, Hans! I knew you oh, could get it. God, Moulin brain. Rouge. I knew you would get this one. Oh my! All right, hurts. Moulin Rouge. So, congratulations, Hans! You won. <laughs> Stump the straight guy. You did not win last week's. Where we, in the episode of German beer, we had named the one-time brewery TV worker whose fat ass—that was her quote—was tossed up onto an airplane wing in the Broadway production of *The Drowsy Chaperone*, and her name was Cindy Williams Shirley Feeney from *Laverne and Shirley*. Yes, which I love that show. It was a great show. Um, but you yeah, know what? You didn't you love actually, it enough to get your answer right. Hey, listen, for those uh, those uh, rules lawyers out there that are sticklers, we actually didn't have an episode last week, uh, Stump the Straight Guy, because you had a guest star on last week's episode, and you didn't even attempt to stump her. And no. so my, I was really holding out as a listener, since I wasn't there no. for the uh, episode, thinking that I'm going to get to, as a listener, enjoy someone else's misery and you just brushed right by it, didn't even no, challenge that, her. That is that is just something for you. Yeah, which quite honestly, Corey, our guest, probably would know all of the answers because she herself. Oh, is, she would have. Uh, yeah, yeah, she would know them. Yeah. Okay, so let's so let's get back to absinthe. So absinthe was originally fairly expensive. It's a drink for the upper middle classes, but by the second half of the 19th century, there are some producers that are switching from grape alcohol to cheaper grain alcohols and beet alcohols, and the prices fall dramatically. So now, as absinthe is becoming more popular among the French working class, it makes two 
enemies. Now, the first is the winemakers, because they are seeing their market vanishing, because as it's becoming more popular with the French working class at the exact same time, the French wine industry was hit with a crippling mildew and aphid infestation. Well, I hate it when that happens. I didn't even know about this. Uh, So nearly the entire French national vineyard was destroyed and had to be replanted. And it took decades to fix this, and it resulted in wine shortages and higher prices. So when the wine industry is trying to recover and they're seeking to regain the market share that they had lost, um, they begin to agitate for the prohibition of what they think of as unnatural products like absinthe, because it's a couple of ingredients, it's just not wine, right? So the wine industry ironically joins forces with the second industry, the anti-alcohol lobby. Oh, it's prohibition. That seems like a conflict of interest there for the wine industry, does it not? I guess they're thinking that they're going to get rid of hard spirits, but and specifically absinthe, but not, not wine. Because the impetus for the French ban on absinthe, it actually started in Switzerland. In 1905, there's a Swiss peasant, and his name is uh, Jean Lefray. He comes home from work. And he finds that his pregnant wife has not waxed his boots while he was at work. So they have an argument and he shoots her and their two very, very young daughters. Wow. And they blame this crime. Big news. They blame it on the two glasses of absinthe he had drunk that day. However, they didn't talk about the fact that he was a terrible alcoholic. Apparently, he was drinking up to five liters of wine a day, as well as brandy and cognac and other hard spirits. So uh, he is found guilty, and he later commits suicide by hanging himself. So in 1907, the Blue Cross, the French Blue Cross, uh, the Croix Bleu, if you will, (laughs) they gather 400,000 signatures to get rid of absinthe. They gather 400,000 signatures on a petition that says absinthe makes you crazy and criminal, provokes epilepsy and tuberculosis, has killed thousands of French people. It makes you a ferocious beast of a man, a martyr of a woman, and a degenerate of the infant. It disorganizes and ruins the family and menaces the future of the country. Wow, that's a, yeah. that's a testimonial. That it is, is a testimonial. But what about the science, you say? What about the science? Enter. Dr. Valentin Magnan. That's my French accent, (laughs) Valentin Magnan. He's a French psychiatrist, and he sets out to prove that absinthe is at fault for what he is seeing. He was a degenerist. That that, that was a whole movement of of psychiatry at the time. Isn't Ellen a degenerist? (laughs) (laughs) She is. She's a modern one, but yes. So he's seeing the collapse of French culture and a decline in all of European civilization. And he wants to blame that on absinthe. In the early 1900s, they discovered that wormwood, which is in the absinthe, has one particular component, thujone. And that is the culprit for the widespread alcoholism and all of France's society ills. So thujone is a toxic chemical that's found in several edible plants. You can find it in tarragon and sage and wormwood. Magnan conducts all these experiments on animals, dogs and mice and guinea pigs, where he's giving them straight concentrations of, high concentrations at least, of straight thujone and wormwood oil. Now he's not giving them the the spirit of uh, absinthe, he's just giving them the the straight thujone and wormwood oil, and they're experiencing convulsions and dying, of course. So he takes all of that data, transfers it directly to absinthe and extrapolates the data to make it apply to humans. Well, so the, 
Yeah, just snap like that. It, it, that blows up. The results uh, led him to promote the syndrome absinthism. Now, that's something separate from alcoholism. And here's a quote from him that's really long, and I, I believe it or not, I've really cut this back. In absinthism, the hallucinating delirium is most terrifying. All of a sudden, the absinthist cries out, loses consciousness, and falls. The jaws clench, the eyes roll up, the limbs stiffen, a jet of urine escapes. Gas and waste material are brusquely expulsed. In just a few seconds, the face becomes contorted, the jaws gnash, and the tongue projected between the teeth is badly gnawed. A bloody saliva covers the lip, the face grows red, becomes purplish, the whole body relaxes, the sphincter releases, the evacuations soil the sick man. Suddenly, he lifts his head and casts his eyes around him with a look of bewilderment. He doesn't remember a thing that has happened. Wow. Wow. Yeah, Cheers, I, up. I, I was looking forward to a, a glass of absinthe uh, at the beginning of this podcast. And now I feel like I'm listening to one of those commercials that say, you know, may cause violent diarrhea, might, might cause, right. uh, you know, temporary deadness. <laughs> so, do, you, do you remember those wow potato chips? Oh, is it the ones with the olean that might cause <laughs> yes, explosive? Exactly. It's much like that. It's much the same as the wow potato chips. Uh, for those who don't remember that, uh, tell us what the warning was on the wow potato chips. Oh, I don't know. May, may. Uh, may cause uh, sudden sphincter releases and yeah. evacuations to soil the sick man. It, it was essentially might may cause explosive diarrhea. Maybe not in so few <laughs> words, but it essentially was warning you, these might be damn good chips, but prepare to change your undergarments. Wow. Wow. So you have Magnon's absenthism syndrome and that family murder. It, all of that is added to the narrative of the temperance movement, the prohibition movement. Switzerland bans absinthe in 1908, and this domino effect led to bans in the Netherlands, Italy, the U.S., and finally France in around 1914. Now, but technically speaking, the government never banned absinthe. It banned the thujon inside the absinthe. But either way, these bans lasted for over 100 years. I had always heard that it was um, that the wormwood was the hallucinogen or what have you, and that's what they had removed. Um, so it's, it's funny how there is a lot of this sort of, um, you know, its own pop culture mythology around absence. It was definitely villainized to the point where when I was young, I thought that that green bottle was like green did not mean go, that that was dangerous stuff, you know? Yeah. Now, was it really dangerous? Uh, possibly. Because the well-made absence, they would use chlorophyll uh, huh? from herbs to achieve that that green color. Um, but it was an expensive process, difficult to control. So these low-cost producers I was mentioning, they would substitute chemicals like copper to achieve the same effect. Uh, they were adding chloride, uh, which is you know not a good thing to do, to help the drink uh, become cloudy when the water was added. And some of that low-grade alcohol may uh, also have included uh, toxic alcohols like, meth uh, like methanol. Yeah, and I, I know that those artificial green colors, uh, when green was first introduced as a paint, there, that copper in there was causing a lot of health uh, issues as well. So uh, famously, green well, was a dangerous color. Yeah, and, and you go back to Vincent van Gogh, who would lick his paintbrushes. And so there's a lot of that as possible uh, problem, uh, possible issues for his mental state. Now, in October 2007, new guidelines are issued and it made absinthe legal again, as long as the bottle contains less than 10 parts per million of thujone. So that would be considered thujone free. And now we know that the toxic effects are greatly exaggerated because uh, somebody my size 
I would have to con uh, consume about 30 milligrams of thujone in order to feel the effects. Um, but according to the Wormwood Society, in order for me to get 30 milligrams of thujone, I'd have to drink three bottles of this 130 proof alcohol. And so I would be dead of alcohol poisoning before I felt that. And this was true even in Menyon's time. I, um, you know, every time there is a word with absinthe in its root, I keep thinking it is sounds like uh, someone has a lisp. Like this whole time, I'm trying to figure out how to say something about us doing a podcast. And we used to, our first podcast, we did them in the same room, but now we're having to do them over Zoom in absentia. <laughs> I don't know. Well, this 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 podcast makes me feel warm and fuzzy because absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. Oh, I love it. Well, I love it. but speaking of this, you've led me right into a quiz. Uh oh, because of puns on absinthe, there are uh, there is a famous celebrity who put out his own brand of absinthe. Now that might be a trick. It might be a his or a her. You don't know. Okay. So here are four celebrities. Is it a goth rocker Marilyn Manson? who put out Mansynth? Is it B, social influencer Kim Kardashian, who put out Cardabasynth? <laughs> Is it C, magician Chris Angel, who put out Abracadabasynth? Is it C, <laughs> singer Kelly Clarkson, who put out Absinthe You've Been Gone? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I will listen. I um, I wish that that uh, C and D were true. I might even buy them. But I knowing that that absinthe has always had this sort of goth rock kind of uh, people love for some reason. If you're if you have dyed black hair and you have on eyeliner, uh, for some reason, you are drawn to the color chartreuse. Uh, and so I think that it would be Marilyn Manson. It is Marilyn Manson. Cool. With Mansense, although I really do like Abracadabra. <laughs> All right, so I, that is all I have to say about that. And so now maybe we should tuck in around the table for some recipes. Let's do it. The only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. So knowing that people tend to villainize uh, fennel with the uh, sort of negative connotations of black licorice, um, I decided to kind of go with, uh, with fennel more as... Uh, subtle notes, right? I don't want to whack anybody over the head with with that licorice flavor if you don't like it. So I am in a total rice and beans mode. And, and honestly, I eat a lot of rice and beans, um, which apparently fennel helps with said flatulence, uh, going back to earlier in the conversation. But one of my favorite Southern preparations of rice and beans is Hoppin' John. And Hoppin' John is just so good. The black-eyed peas or the field peas with uh, with rice is a great combination. And typically you would use sort of a mirepoix, right? Which would be your celery, your onions, sometimes carrots. Mm -hmm. you, would, you would have these aromatics. I love to discard the celery, which I love celery. We'll talk about celery in another, uh, in another conversation, but adding fennel in place of the celery just adds that nice herbaceous kick. It has that subtle note of those uh, anatholes in there without again being overly uh, licorice-ish, <laughs> that's a word. 
Um, so to me, a fennel hop and John is the perfect way to enjoy it. Now, I eat that sometimes cold as a salad. I'll make a, a simple vinaigrette and have a cold uh -huh. rice and bean salad. Uh, and in that case, you can take some of the green fennel fronds and chop them up and make a nice vinaigrette for that as well. So on the website, I will have a recipe both for a classic hot fennel hop and John. And then I'll also give you a nice recipe for a, um, a fennel vinaigrette that you can use with a cold salad with black eyed peas and some rice uh, to enjoy on a on a warm day when those come back around. I love those kind of cold, uh, cold bean salads. I really do. I like that a lot. That sounds delicious. Um, my cocktail, I'm going to do a Sazerac. In 1838, there was a New Orleans chemist named Antoine Peychaud, and he began making a drink, uh, kind of a brandy toddy. Uh, he was using a Sazerac French brandy. That was the name of the brand during the waning years of the French Creole culture. And he would uh, make it in an egg cup and serve it that way. And he called the item a cocotiere. Now, some people say that is how we ended up with the word cocktail. I don't buy that. There are people who say a million different ways that they used to stir the drink with a the tail of a rooster. There's so many different ways, so many different stories about where the word came from. But that is one of the stories. Now, I've been to the Sazerac Bar at the Roosevelt Hotel in New Orleans. Have you been there? I have not. Oh, my goodness. It's one of my favorite places in the universe. Um, it's this art deco bar with uh, like plush bar stools, this really long mahog mahogany bar, these uh, walnut paneled walls, and 1930s murals all over the walls. They run the length of the room. Just stunning. And in when you go to the Sazerac bar in this hotel, and by the way, they pay the Sazerac company a licensing fee to be able to use their name. You can get a Sazerac or a Ramos Gin Fizz. Mm. And that is a story. I'm going to save that drink for another uh, show. But the Ramos Gin Fizz is a fascinating drink. But the Sazerac is actually a thing of beauty in its simplicity. You are taking the absinthe and you are taking a cold glass and you're pouring uh, just a, a bit, maybe you know, quarter ounce of absinthe into this chilled glass. You swirl it around to coat the inside of the glass. Then you are adding into a, a shaker your uh, rye, your simple syrup, and uh, your bitters. Stir those up and pour them right into that glass. Uh, some people say that you should use a lemon twist. Some people don't. That is up to you. Uh, I do not, but the Sazerac is one of the most classic of all cocktails. And there is few cocktails that are so uh, synonymous with a town as Sazerac is with New Orleans. Well, I think we need to do a field trip. And I think we need to do a remote <laughs> from there. Uh, even though we have covered the topic of fennel, I think uh, we just need to uh, plan a vacation or at least a, not a vacation, it is a corporate outing, uh, a discovery oh, journey. <laughs> for Tuscany the, uh, for fennel and New Orleans for Sazerac's. I think that sounds like uh, all in a day's work, my friend, all in a day's work. So if you're interested in these recipes, please visit us at our website, budidigestpodcast.com. Email us things that piss you off at budidigestpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at budidigestpod. Our Instagram is budidigestpodcast. And also on our website, you will find a link to Hans's line of spices, which are delicious and many different uses, as well as a What's with the fingers? I, I, I almost forgot. I actually made a new spice blend using fennel 
and I made a big batch. And so I'm actually going to put that up available uh, for sale on my Etsy page. And it's a, it's a mix of fennel, thyme, smoked salt, white pepper, black pepper. And I put it in a grinder. Uh, and I'm so excited about this. And I cannot believe I forgot to tell you, but I have been using smoked salt and fennel as kind of an all-purpose thing for a long time. So I kind of ramped it up. So I've made sort of a limited edition, fun, uh, but I digest spice mix um, that I'm going to put up for as well, just because it was fun and it's delicious. So yes. on our website or just on your Etsy page? Uh, you know what? We'll, we'll put a link to the Etsy page on the website. On the so website. That, there yeah. you go. So stick with the website to get to there. Although Hans, what is your Etsy page called? Uh, you know, it's just Hans Cooks. That's my, my social media handle as well. So it's the Hans Cooks Etsy page. All right. Um, so you will find those lines of spices, the link if you would like to go and get this fennel uh, salt, which is a great idea. And you can download my cocktail book right on there. Just a quick download of the cocktail book, The New Old Bar. As always, special thanks to our web designer, Hewitt Rabel, to our editor, Natalie DeChico, special music by Corey Goodrich. And our theme music is by Brian Reyes. Hans, close us out. You have something important to say. Well, so we are recording this in the month of November. I have no idea when you are listening to this, but that brings me to my point that, you know, everything has an awareness month and November just, you know, happens to be gastric cancer awareness month. But the reality is for people that have been touched by gastric cancer, or like myself, um, we're aware of it every month, every day, every minute. Uh, and so even though that's the theme of November, uh, whenever you're listening to this, you can help out. And the Gastric Cancer Foundation is uh, a very, uh, very close to my heart. And I've been involved with them for well over a decade. And we are doing our annual fundraiser. It is called Come Together for a Cure. And uh, we would like to get together and throw a big party. But in these times of, uh, of COVID, we're doing it all virtual. And I'm going to be doing a live cooking demonstration coming up. So if you will do me a giant favor and go to the gastric cancer website, which is just gastriccancer.org, you'll see a lot of nutritional videos that I've done over the years. Uh, Hewitt Rabel that we just mentioned uh, helps me create those videos. Um, and we're going to be doing a live one coming up uh, towards the end of November. And if you are listening to this after the fact, you can go back and watch the, uh, the previous versions of them and ask questions. But it is a big part of my life, and I uh, I hate that I have to talk about gastric cancer, but I'm happy that I'm here to be a success story, and I want to share that for anybody that uh, that might be going through that. So I appreciate the support on on that front. Sounds good. Are we done here? We are done. I'm ready for uh, some wormwood. 